Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, I want to introduce you to Instacart Express, the products you love from your favorite local stores delivered right to your door in as fast as an hour. Just follow the link in the show notes and get free delivery on your first order over $35. Before we welcome our special guest today, a quick reminder, our documentary about the history of terrestrial radio, Radio Days, 100 Years of Radio. That's the title. I think in last week's podcast, I called it Radio Days, 100 Years of Radio. It's Radio Days, 100 Years of Radio. COVID changed the title. That's a true story. Coming later this year, if you would like to help and become a producer of this movie, click the heart at the top of the page and become a Patreon. Every little bit helps. Thank you in advance. Well, I'm super excited about my guest today. He's won a Peabody Award for Uncovering Corruption in Detroit Federal Bankruptcy Court. He's aired a series of reports on uh, faulty bite mark evidence, which led to the freeing of two men who had been serving life prison terms. In 2005, he was the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from the AP, and in 2007, it's a long, long, long list of accolades here, he was inducted into the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Gene Fogel. Gene, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. I really, I really do appreciate it. Um, uh, before we begin, Gene, um, I want to thank you for for your friendship and your mentorship. Gene, you've always been someone like that I've looked up to, and I know there's others to, that, that do as well. But my first question is: When you were growing up, who were some of the voices that you listened to as a kid? Wow, you're taking you're you're going way back. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was sure I was going to be the next greatest rock and roll disc jockey, and so at night. You know, radio signals travel further at night. So I could pick up stations in New York and Chicago and Pittsburgh, KDKA. I can remember one of my first all-time heroes was a disc jockey out of Chicago, of all places. Dick Biondi was his name. I don't know why I remember it to this day, but I guess he really had an impression on me. And then, then are, of course, uh, disc jockeys here in Detroit. Uh, Jack the Bellboy was one that comes to mind. Talk to me about when you discovered that you wanted to work in radio. How did you get your first job in radio? Where was your first job in radio? In college. Uh, prior to that, in high school, a popular thing of the day was disc jockeys, local disc jockeys would come out and have street dances. You, you'd go out in, into a neighborhood, light up a tennis court, and the disc jockey from a local station would come out. And so I was watching these guys. Again, my, my idea was to be the world's greatest disc jockey. Uh, but I had no on-air experience whatsoever. Then I went to college. I went to Western Michigan University. Lo and behold, they had a college radio station there. So I went over and auditioned, and I got a job. Of course, there was no pay, and as long as you had a heartbeat, they would probably hire you unless you were really awful. Right. So I got a disc jockey show, and uh, <laughs> it was bad, but I was having the, a ball doing a radio show. And from there, 
I, I started doing some record hops. But there's a term from the past, record yeah, hops. Yeah, oh, my goodness. At, 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 the, at the college, still thought I was going to be a disc jockey. Had no interest in news whatsoever. Did have some interest in sports. The radio station started broadcasting football games. So I started doing some football games at Western Michigan. Until I graduated, nothing in news. Between my junior and senior year in college, I interned at a television station in Elkhart, Indiana. Sort of sparked an interest. Disc jockeys were very popular. It was really difficult to get a disc jockey job. But there was an opening at another television station, again in Indiana, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I started out as a camera person running a camera. I, I did some directing, television directing, and got an opportunity at an attached radio station to make friends with a newsman there who told me about you know a future in news. I was looking into it, boom, drafted into the Army. So after basic training, they sent me to Fort Gordon, uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia, and they assigned me to the television station there. And I became an on-air TV newscaster. And as you know, having a face for radio, TV is not going to take you very far. So it was that, it was that job in the Army doing television news that got me interested in radio. I ended up spending two years in the Army. As I was being released from the Army, I sent out resumes, oh, I don't know, to 100 stations. And one, WCAR, 1130 Detroit AM. Infamous in the marketplace, CAR, that's old school. And it was an old school radio station owned by one man rather than a conglomerate of some sort. Hired me to do news, talk about uh, a different time. When he hired me, he said, well, listen, we can have you do news four days a week, but we need a disc jockey to work wow. midnights on Sunday nights. So I, I would work Sunday nights as a midnight to 6 a.m. disc jockey. Then four other days a week, I would do radio news. And so I did that for four years. A friend of mine at WJR calls me and said one of the news people had just left there. They had an opening. So I called the news director at WJR, went in for an interview, got hired at WJR. I spent a whole lot of years there. The rest is history. Now, you uh, obviously WJR has um, it's kind of mystique. It's, got, it's a legendary radio station, not just in Detroit, but across the country because, I mean, they're the old adages. You know, you can pick up WGR in, in 32 states and half of Canada. But uh, one of the first, and this is something that I discuss in my movie. Um, I didn't specifically ask you about it, but it's one of the issues that we talk about. Is one of the first celebrities spawned from radio was uh, Father Charles Coughlin, who uh, who did it at WGR. I think he went on the air in late 20s. Um, and I didn't really know much about Father Coughlin, even working at WGR the few times. But and I know this was before our times. But what kind of did you? What kind of stuff did you learn over the years about Father Coughlin? Because it's not, it's it's kind of something that, especially at JR, was kind of like ah, we don't really talk about those days because he he did eventually become so controversial. But what do you remember? What did you learn about Father Coughlin? Well, I'm I'm a little surprised to hear you say it was the 20s. I, I would have if you would have asked me, I would have thought it was the 40s that he was on. He started but, in 29, but I, I think he went on to late the late 30s, early 40s before he was finally taken off. All, all, I, knew, all I knew about him was that he, he was the pastor, I believe, at Shrine of the Little Flower in Royal Oak. And, and somehow or another, he, he was able to do this talk show on WJR. His shows were very controversial, 
which eventually led to his dismissal. And I'm sorry, I know no more than that. Well, I, I found it interesting because I asked Paul W. Smith about this, and, and I didn't realize this, but that's kind of why uh, WGR started doing the, the Goodwill Station was because to offset the stuff that he was spewing. Because for those who don't know, Father Coughlin, although he didn't start that way, um, he eventually became very, very anti. He became an anti-Semite. He became a Hitler sympathizer. So, I, I, if I, I find it interesting that that's kind of where the genesis of WJR, the Goodwill Station, because that was their only jobs. Paul W. pointed out. You, you, you sparked my interest. I think I'm going to, to go to the computer and, and look up Father <laughs> Coughlin. You started WJR in 1971. That was the time when J.P. McCarthy was the was the great voice of the Great Lakes. Tell me about the first time that you met J.P. McCarthy, if you would. Interesting story. They hired me, and I'd been on the air a couple of days, and I come to work one day, and I get off the elevator, and there's JP ready to get on. He says, oh, are you the new guy? I said, yeah, hi, uh, Gene Fogel. He said, great to have you. I heard you. You sound great. You're going to be a real plus to our station. Then he said goodbye and got on the elevator. I said, holy moly, that was JP McCarthy, and he took time to welcome me you know, not some big standoff celebrity, you know, who are you, the new guy in town? And I thought, wow, no wonder he's so successful. He just he just makes everybody that he talks to feel like they're the most important person in the world. And I'll tell you, I went to work that day saying, Fogel, don't screw up. JP thinks you're okay. He put the pressure on. Now, um, for JP obviously was a legend, and people would come from all over the world to be interviewed by JP. Well, th- there are all kinds of celebrities you'd see. The, the one that uh, yeah, I guess there's two of them that stick in my mind. I was working in the newsroom, and we had a coffee machine in the newsroom. You know, you couldn't survive without coffee. And here comes a guy walking in, and I was sort of typing away, not paying attention. He says, excuse me, do you mind if I get a cup of coffee? And I look up, and it's Tony Bennett. Unbelievable. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, and uh, the other was one of the Beach Boys, whose name and now has escaped me. Mike, Is it Mike Love? Yes, Mike Love came in looking for a cup of coffee in the newsroom. But you'd you'd go down this long hallway, and JP's studio was right near the newsroom, and you you could see different celebrities coming up and down the hallway. It was like a a who's who of of Celebrityville when uh, the Focus Show would come out, which was his noon interview show. You could be very starstruck just watching these people and say, "Wow, they all knew JP." You know, they they weren't like going from city to city, talking to anonymous people. They were coming to Detroit to talk to JP. They, they would come to Detroit to write to talk to JP. What do, you, what do you think it was about JP that made him special, made him so universally liked? Well, it, it's like my first encounter with him. He he just had this interest in, not in everything, he had, he had this interest in people. He wanted to know who you are, what made you tick. And, and so you would be so impressed by this guy that want to tell him whatever one, whatever he wanted to know. And that's what made him a great interviewer. He broke a lot of news stories by, by getting people to admit to things on the air. You know, I think I hold JP in such reverence that, that I sometimes, uh, and, and, and wrongfully so kind of overlook what Paul W. Smith has done because I was talking to Art Volo uh, on last week's show, and he pointed out that uh, Paul W. has been doing that show longer than J.P. did. And Paul W. Smith, he didn't come in and try to be J.P. He did his own thing, and he's been doing it for 20, you know, 25, 26 years or whatever it is. But talk to me about Paul W. Smith and what he's meant to the radio station at WGR. Well, I'll tell you what 
Paul and JP have in common. They are both optimist, they both like people, and they both treat people with respect. I mean, almost identical twins in that in that manner. They 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 didn't take their celebrity to heart. They didn't look down at people. You know, JP and Paul W. They could interview the president of a corporation, or they could interview the parking lot attendant, and they'd give them both the same courtesy. That's that's what amazed me. That's what admiration that I had for these men. Up next on Radio Days, the podcast. You started working at WJR in 1971. What was it like to be a reporter at WJR in the 70s? It was a first-class operation all the way. You know, we've, we've all seen shady operations maybe in different businesses. This was first-class. They, they, had, they had staff announcers. They had a variety of shows. You know, you mentioned that they were the, the Goodwill Station, WJR, the great voice of the Great Lakes. Have you been thinking about starting a podcast? I highly recommend Buzzsprout. We use it here for this podcast and could not be more happy with all the bells and whistles we have access to. Buzzsprout gets your show listed in every major podcast platform. You also get a great-looking podcast website, audio players that can drop into other websites, detailed analytics, tools to promote your episodes, and much more. Following the link in the show notes gets you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. Plus, it helps support our show. Go check out Buzzsprout today. Thank you for tuning in today. Today I'm talking with legendary WGR reporter Gene Fogel. Gene, as I mentioned earlier, you started working at WGR in 1971. What was it like to be a reporter at WGR in the 70s? What, you, what were you responsible for when you first started? What was your, what was your beat? It was such a different world. It, they, they, it was a first-class operation all the way. You know, we've, we've all seen shady operations maybe in different businesses. This was first-class. They, they, had, they had staff announcers. They had a variety of shows. You know, you mentioned that they were the, the Goodwill Station, WJR, the great voice of the Great Lakes, you know, 760 on your radio dial. But the, but the people were so talented. They, they required a lot from you in, as, in terms of experience before they would even consider you. And uh, this weeding out process led to the station having some of the, the, the most talented people that I've ever worked with anywhere. Talk to me about the respect you would garner being a reporter from WGR. You'd go out to cover a story, and, and if, if, I've, if story holds true, WGR had a spot in the front row because JR is where everybody else tuned in to get the latest news, no? Oh, that's, that's absolutely true. I, I, I can't tell you the number of times, you know, as a radio reporter, you walk into a news conference or you walk over to interview somebody, they don't know who you are because they don't see you on the air. They don't know what your face is. A TV reporter that, oh, that's, that's John Doe from W whatever. But the moment I said, hi, I'm Gene Fogel from WJR, whoa, they would roll out the red carpet. Let me take you up here in front. The magic words weren't Gene Fogel. The magic words were WJR. But and, and that's the good point. That wasn't lost on you that you were reporting for WJR. Was there, a, I don't know, a, an aspect of, oh, my gosh, I have to do the best job that I can because I'm working at such a prestigious radio station? Was there any of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I always felt that after I saw how I would be treated at news conferences, I made sure that I always presented myself in a polite, well-respected manner, or hopefully well-respected manner, not the, the shove the microphone in your face, rude reporter, you know, ambush journalism type. I would always pre- present myself with 
the respect I wanted the radio station to have. Let's talk about your Peabody Award, Gene. You won uh, this for your work uncovering corruption in Detroit Federal Bankruptcy Court. What year was that? And talk about how you started learning about the corruption. In in my head, it's like uh, all the president's men. I mean, real investigative reporting. Talk about that, if you would. Well, you have to understand, we had a new staff that had like 16 people in it. And so we had assignments. We had a reporter who covered the city county building, who covered the mayor. We had a we had a reporter who covered the police. We had a reporter in Lansing who covered the mayor, or the governor. I was the federal court reporter. That was my assignment every day. I would go to federal court. That was my beat. I would look for stories. So when you when you work a beat, you you try to develop sources. You meet the people. You meet the different clerks for the judges. You meet the people down in the main office. Uh, you meet the the U.S. attorney because the U.S. attorney's office was there. You meet the head of the FBI. All, all these officials who are out of the federal court system. And so you get to know people. And again, I don't think it was any great effort on my part. They knew I was from WJR. So WJR already had that respect. And so if there were things going on, eventually I would hear about them in the court. And I would decide, well, that's worth following up. This is worth following up. And so one day I'm, I'm covering the federal court and, and I hear that federal investigators are, are looking into some sort of corruption going on and, and they don't know if it's true or not. They've just heard rumors. So they're looking into it. And so I'm in, in, in the process of trying to uncover the story, I start talking to various clerks and I hear bits of information from this clerk, this clerk, this clerk. And I, it leads me to one of the city's biggest bankruptcy attorneys seems to get all of the big bankruptcy cases. And that should never happen because it's a blind draw system. When a, when a case is filed, there's a, there's a blind draw that, that assigns the judges to any particular case. And I, I keep seeing this one attorney keeps getting all of the cases. So the chief clerk, John Mayer, Superman, very honest, very above board. I said, can I look at the blind draw cards because they're kept on record? He says, sure. Let me, let me help you out. So I'm looking through all of these cards that has the judge's name on it. And I see down in the corner initials, KB, KB. So I go to John. I says, who's KB? Oh, that's one of our clerks. Well, you notice every time this attorney gets a case, she's the one that drew the card. And he says, wow, that shouldn't happen. I end up talking to this woman, find out that her... She's living in an apartment that's being paid for by this attorney that's getting all the cases. That just simply led to the recognition that they were cheating on the blind draw system. And if three attorneys or three judges, one, two, and three, and judge one is the one you wanted to avoid, and you file the case with your girlfriend, and she draws number one, well, you don't want number one, so she puts it at the bottom of the pile and keeps drawing until she gets the judge you want. So anyway, the judge or the attorney went to jail. The uh, assistant court clerk uh, got fired. Three girls got uh, uh, misdemeanor sentences. And uh, it, it led to a whole uh, entire revamping of the entire court. So I was, I was really proud of that work. Now, when, when you start airing these reports and, and, the, and the public is getting this information for the first time, is there was there any kickback to the station or you saying, hey, you know, um, 
and, and, and not not necessarily being threatened, but any heat? Did you draw any heat from the uh, from the people that were being uh, accused of this stuff? Just the opposite. People were screwing to, to get under the covers, to get away from us. Okay. When I would walk through the clerk's section of the federal court building, every radio would be on WJR because they were they wanted to hear what we were learning, what we were telling them about what was going on in the court. I mean, the people who didn't have any clue about what was going on. And and I would go into the clerk's office. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd come up to me and want to know, what have I heard? I said, well, <laughs> what have you heard? Uh, no, it, 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 there was no, no, you know, I had one minor threat. You know, the, the attorney said he was going to sue us. He's going to sue us for libel. I said, well, it's not libel if it's true. So that was the only real threat I had. Nothing, nothing, you know, they weren't going to send somebody to break my legs. And, and I imagine that became less and less as, as the evidence became more and more overwhelming. And they, they had bigger fish to fry at that point, I'm sure. Um, you know, another uh, subject that I want to talk to you about, and I don't even think I've asked you about this in our personal conversations, but another reason that another person I'm, I'm fascinated with and, and I want to ask you, what was it like to cover Mayor Coleman Young? Oh, wow. I, I could tell you several Coleman Young stories. Uh, he didn't like the press. He was a confrontational guy. But he judged everybody individually. If he thought you were fair, if he thought you were honest, he would he would give you a little breathing room. If he thought you had a hidden agenda, if he thought you were didn't know what you're talking about, he'd, he'd shut you out in a second. So it would make him tough to deal with if you were part if you were part of a mass crowd of reporters, because he would he would see all of the reporters as one, so he wouldn't trust them. Right. If you could get him one-on-one, -on -one, then he could judge you for what you were, and, and he would give you whatever due respect he felt you deserved. And obviously the face of that uh, confrontation between the press and, and uh, Mayor Coleman Young took the face of Bill Bonds. What made that kind of <laughs> dynamic between those two very—it was must-watch television. Talk to me about the, the relationship with Bill. Talk to me about Bill Bonds and, and Mayor Coleman Young. and what I'm, I'm very lucky in that both people— were very nice to me, but both people had huge egos. So you had to understand where they were coming from. I mean, they were successful because they were so good at what they did. I mean, they had their own demons, and sometimes they had to deal with those demons. But, uh, you know, in fact, Bill Bonds a few times sat in for J.P. McCarthy when and did his radio show. And that's when I first got to know Bill. You couldn't have found a more intelligent, interested in news, what's best for Detroit kind of guy than Bill Bonds. And that's and, right. And, and people know him from Channel 7, obviously, but he started in radio here in Detroit. Right. And, and you know, he, uh, as, as, I, as I recall in my vague memories, you know, he shot to prominence during the riots of 67. They were doing live coverage, and, and, and Bill was on the air for countless hours, and people were turning in to, to Bill Bonds to, to learn about all of this destruction going on in Detroit. Another big story, Gene, you broke open was when you aired a series of reports on faulty bite mark evidence, which led to the freeing of two men who had been serving life prison terms in a brutal rape case. Could you talk to me about this series of reports? How did you come about this story? I was sort of the tag along on this story. This story belongs all to Rod Hansen. Uh, Rod passed away a few years ago, but Rod won two Peabody's at WJR. Uh, for his investigative reporting work. And uh, 
we had a, a friend, a criminal attorney in Detroit who, who came to Rod one day and said, look, I've had four cases where, where people have been convicted on bite mark evidence. And they've been all convicted on the same testimony from the same dentist, an odontologist. And uh, my friend, the attorney, tells me that the bite mark evidence was, was phony. So Rod says, look, I, I really want to do this story. Will you help me? So, so he and I started a dual investigation. Uh, but I want to give all the credit to Rod for, for breaking all of the stories. I, I, I helped with interviews. I did, did the interview. I, I, I was able to get an interview with the, the odontologist. He, he wouldn't talk to Rod. But uh, in all of the cases, people were convicted. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, in one of the cases, two men were sentenced to life in prison and had served 11 years before we started airing our stories on the faulty bite mark evidence. And as a result of those stories, the, the guys were freed from jail. In fact, two other guys also charged, uh, out of the four cases we interviewed, we, we discovered, three were freed from prison. The fourth was not. Uh, the fourth, to me, was the worst case of all, but, but uh, it, it was a woman who was still in prison. Wow. But in, in the other cases, the three, the three were freed, and the odontologist, prosecutors looked at his testimony, uh, dropped him from, from being used in any further cases involving bite mark evidence. Well, you mentioned Rod Hansen, Rod Hansen. Talk to me about what, I mean, he's another legendary name to come from that station. Um, talk to me about working with, alongside him. What's that? What was that like? Well, I, I, I admired Rod. Rod and I ended up becoming uh, the best of friends. He just, he loved investigative reporting. He, in fact, he had the same skill that you mentioned earlier with Paul W. and JP. He could walk into a room and in 10 minutes be friends with everybody in the room. He just had that kind of personality. I'm, I'm a shyer type than he is. I could walk into a room and stand in the corner for 20 minutes and not talk to anybody. Rod, would, whether, whether it was a, a news conference, whether it was walking into a, a bar after work to have a drink, he would get to know everybody. And this, this personality led to him developing huge, huge numbers of sources. I, I enjoy telling a, a couple of stories about Rod, if you don't mind. Of course, go ahead. He, he was this great newsman, but he was also a little kid at heart. He loved to play jacks. He'd have a rubber ball in, in one pocket and jacks in the other. And he'd bounce the rubber ball and pick wow. up one jack. Then he'd bounce, pick up two jacks. You know, a kid's game. That's this is awesome. Rod. What are you doing? I love to play jacks. So, so he was he was a little kid at heart, but he was he was a, a great reporter. And I want to ask you about that. Did he? Did you learn anything? Do you emulate? Did you end up emulating anything that he did? Did you? What did you grab from him as far as being a reporter? Whether that be writing news or reporting news, what did you learn from Rod? The biggest part I learned from him was dealing with people. You can walk in the room and say, "I'm from WJR," and people would be impressed, but you're not real. He taught me to be real, to, 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 again, I go back to JP and taking an interest in people, letting people know that you care about them, their, their troubles. You want to, you want to listen to their, their stories. You want to hear what they have to say because you think they're important enough to listen to. That was the biggest thing Rod taught me. Up next on Radio Days, the podcast. Take two names, Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern. People would say to me, did you hear what Howard Stern said? 
Did you hear what Rush Limbaugh said? Those guys are, oh, I'm out. And they would, hello, have you noticed your radio's got a dial on it? Right, you, turn it. You can turn the station off. Or change the station if you want. But people would hate these guys, and they would listen to them. I want to introduce you to Instacart Express, the products you love from your local stores, delivered right to your door in as fast as an hour. Your groceries hand-selected by Instacart shoppers based on your preferences. They also pick the freshest produce, and they're going to keep your eggs safe too. Instacart also highlights deals for you to help you save money. Just follow the link in the show notes and get free delivery on your first order over 35 bucks. Go check out Instacart today. Over the years, radio journalism has definitely changed. We've talked about this. Talk to me about being a reporter in the 21st century. How has the job changed, in your view, from 1971 to now? Well, here's what the, uh, the one thing I noticed. I ran the internship program at WJR for years, and we would have no trouble hiring a dozen interns every summer. And these young kids would come in all enthused to learn about radio and and work on an internship. Now today, I can't find any kids interested in radio. They want to go on TV, they want to do their podcasts, they want to get on the computer, uh, they want to stream. And so radio now is becoming, whether it's good or bad, I don't know, it's it's become a, a headline service. You know, you're driving to work, okay, just fill me in, what's the weather, what's the traffic, give me the, the general headlines of what's going on. If I want to learn more, I'll check out my computer, right. I'll read the paper, I'll watch maybe a TV show. So so we've, we've become an instantaneous news service. We're not, we're not breaking stories, we're not doing investigative reporting. That's the sad part for me. We're not doing investigative reporting. Now, you, as you just mentioned, Gene, that, that, that there's not a lot of investigating reporting going on. Do you think that the paradigm of that, the fact that that's a reality, leaves any level, whether you're talking about school board, the small town, state level? Don't you think uh, pretty much every organization is, is ripe for corruption? Yeah, I, I sure do. It... it, it Every now and then, I, I'll see a great investigative story where corruption has been discovered, where good news reporting has led to good results, and it, it makes me it makes me concerned that if we can find this stuff out, what are we not finding out? And so, one side overbalances the other side, in my opinion. I I, I wish that we could get back to the good old days of, of of investigative reporting. I mean, you talk you mentioned Watergate earlier. Look at the president of the United States, you know, authorizes a break-in at the Watergate apartments, and, and if it wasn't wasn't for a couple of reporters at the Washington Post, we still wouldn't know about that. We still wouldn't know about it. In 2005, Gene, you received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Associated Press, and in 2007, I think this is awesome. You were inducted into the Michigan Journalism Hall of Fame. What do those accolades or recognitions mean to you? I, I owe that probably to my friend, Rod Hansen. Going back to Rod, Rod nominated me for that honor. And uh, he was there at the, the awards dinner to introduce me. One of the things in radio news, you, you can be an anonymous voice. I mean, the people you're working with, if you're covering a beat, they know you. But the listeners don't know you. The li somebody listening to WJR, they'll know, they'll know Paul W. or they'll know Frank Beckman. They don't really know who the news people are. Sometimes you can feel underappreciated, I guess, 
but you have to look at yourself in the mirror every day. So, you know, I'm going to get up and do the best job I can. And, and while I was tremendously honored for these, these awards, I also feel I worked very hard and with what I've left at the radio station, I hope the people who follow me can appreciate uh, what hard work can accomplish. Now, in addition to the illustrious career you've had as a journalist uh, on the radio, you've also been a staple at Oakland University teaching journalism. Talk about your career as a professor. I taught at Oakland University for 25 years. I taught broadcasting classes there, worked with kids at the radio station. The first 20 years were great because kids were excited about radio. The last five years, I started noticing fewer kids signing up for the class. They, they, They weren't interested in radio anymore. Radio is going to be appealing to some, not so appealing to others, and not as appealing to as many. I have mixed feelings about radio today because the opportunities for these young kids is not there like it was for me. Stations are finding that they can do a network show that you take rather than a local show. So, you know, Rush Limbaugh just passed away recently. Rush Limbaugh was on WJR from noon to three. Well, he had this huge listening audience. Uh, Great, great for us, great for ratings, but not so great for the local guy or gal who could possibly do that job. You mentioned Rush Limbaugh. Um, A lot of people say uh, he saved AM radio. And what do you, what say you about Rush Limbaugh's career? Because he's kind of, he's another polarizing figure. Whether you agreed with him or disagreed with him, you listened to him. He was an entertainer. When I would listen to Rush Limbaugh, if I heard something that I didn't like, I wouldn't take it to heart. I'd say that's Rush Limbaugh being aware of the power of of his microphone and, and what he could do. And it's funny, I can take two names, Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern. People would say to me, did you hear what Howard Stern said? Did you hear what Rush Limbaugh said? Those guys are, ah, ah, ah. and they would, I said, hello, have you noticed your radio's got a dial on it? Right, turn it. You can turn the station off, or change the station if you want. But people would hate these guys, and they would listen to them. There must be a lesson there. Well, there's a great line from the movie Private Parts, which I just watched watched recently again. And there's it's at the end when uh, Paul Giamatti's character is talking about uh, the average Howard Stern fan listening listens to like an hour for an hour and ten minutes. But the person who hates Howard's turn listens for an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, that's so, true. That's but, but you talked about two guys who just definitely were entertaining. And I can't, I, to this day, I can't tell you what the subject matter was. But I remember there was a time I once, be, Rush Limbaugh put out a billboard, a teaser that was so good that I sat in my car late for an appointment for seven minutes so that I could hear the payoff. And that's Rush Limbaugh. There's not a lot of people who could who could do make somebody through, sit through that many commercials for a payoff of a billboard. My, you know, my whole career for the most part has been radio. And, and I loved, I loved radio because radio is all about imagination. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I would listen to some of these scary shows on the radio. Right. Then, then I would see, I would go to the movies and see a movie uh, with about a monster. And I can, I can remember watching the TV or the movie and saying, Oh, that's fake. But I never said that about the radio. My mind created the worst imaginary fears than my my vision could ever possibly encompass. 
As you know, our friend and longtime news director at WJR, Dick Hafner, recently retired. Talk about uh, what it was like from your perspective working for Dick Hafner. He was a real newsman. He, he, he was the type of guy who believed the story told itself. You never saw, you never saw Dick putting his feelings into a story. Dick felt that's not his job. I, I can remember several times he would tell me, working in the morning, he would do a crossover talk with Paul W. And Paul W. said, what do you think about this? And Dick would say, I'd rather not say. <laughs> it's not my job. My job is to give you the news. And, and he firmly believed that, and, and I respected him greatly for that, that attitude. He was Dick. How long was he news director at WGR? Oh, I want to say 25 years, maybe. So 25 plus years. The fact that most people don't know his name, I think, is a testament to what you just said. Absolutely. I, I think you bring up a very, very important point. I don't think if you want to go into radio, don't go into radio because you want to be a star. Go into radio because you want to be an informer to people. You want to entertain and inform and help people. You are an anonymous voice. Who can, who can be a, a great influence. WGR will also be soon losing another legend in Frank Beckman, who will uh, retire next month. Talk to me about uh, what Frank has meant to not only WGR, but also radio in general. I mean, people sometimes forget how much this guy has done in radio. Un unbelievable guy. When Frank was hired originally as a news reporter, and you were, you were impressed right away with his great personality. You know, he, he was a powerful, imposing char character. And uh, his work in news was very good. He went to sports. His work in sports was very good. He went to the U of M. His play-by-play -play was very good. And when I say very good, probably great would be a better term. And then, then he got his own talk show. Well, we, you know, we, we talked about uh, Paul W. Smith coming in and replacing a legend in J.P. McCarthy. I mean, Frank's, Frank Beckman replaced Bob Eufer. <laughs> and that's true. That's true. I, I forgot about that. And uh, talk about the talent of radio. The, the skills of radio, Bob Euford, people who hated Bob Euford would listen to him right. because they wanted to know what he'd say so they could they could argue with him. Uh, radio is a strange animal, and Frank understood that too. You, Frank could take some very controversial subjects, have people screaming, and he was the calm voice of reason trying to moderate the differences between these people. So these were these are people who understood the power of the microphone. I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously, we just talked about Rush Limbaugh, and uh, obviously, Frank Beckman's retiring. There's a lot of time that WGR has to fill. Obviously, I point that out because neither one of us are in the know of any decisions are being made over there, but who would you like to see uh, come in and, and take one of these slots? I mean, they're, they're, whether it be Frank Beckman's show or, or, or filling the slot of Rush Limbaugh, you're replacing legends. What what do you do if you're in charge over at WGR to, to fill these these hours of, of time? That I, I wish I could answer. Uh, so many of these radios and TV stations are owned by conglomerates now, and they're looking at bottom line reactions. I'm wondering, okay, when I heard about Rush Limbaugh dying, would he be replaced by another syndicated show, or would they give some local talent an opportunity? Yeah, because I'm sure they're going to replace Lump Rush Limbaugh on that syndicated show, right? Yeah, I, I would assume so. But I, I see radio, and I think back to the years ago when I wanted to be a disc jockey. Disc jockeys were personalities. You knew who they were. They had their own distinct personality. Then consultants came in saying, well, we don't want you to talk more than 12 seconds in inter introducing a record. 
And so it's, it sounds like jukebox radio. And yet when, when you hear of a, a, a personality being successful, it's because they give them time to be a personality, a Dick Burton, a J.P. McCarthy. They don't allow that now. And I just wish that some station, some conglomerate, some company would have a radio station that's comprised of all local talent dealing with local issues all day long. Now that that might that's a pipe dream probably in this world, but it was the world that I knew growing up. And I think kids being a listen to the radio today are not induced to, to go into radio because the opportunities aren't there. Rush Limbaugh, as popular as he was, as big as an audience as he drew on WJR, he was no help to me at one o'clock in the afternoon if we were having a two-foot snowstorm and I wanted to know about the latest problems on the roads. And he's talking about something entirely different. So I, I, I'm just a firm believer in radio should serve the local interest. As we wrap up, Gene, what, what's next for you? What, uh, what's on the horizon for Gene Fogel? <laughs> well, in this crazy world, this pandemic, I, I'm enjoying a life. I'm enjoying a life. I, I find things, I find with, with this crazy pandemic, I run into people who are telling me, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. Well, I, I try not to, to be that pessimistic. I try to say, here's what I can do. I can read a new book. I can go for a walk. I can, I can try a new recipe. Uh, one of the things about modern technology, I've, I've got kids and grandkids, and we Skype. I can find out what they're doing. You mentioned Skype. Look at the technology, because I know for a fact when you started at WGR, you were editing stories on Reel to Reel. Now we're doing the Skype. That's <laughs> yeah. crazy to me. Putting stories on carts and erasing them with magnetic erasers, splicing tape with tape and scissors. You know, I, I one final question I have to ask you about this, because I talked about this with, uh, with John Stockwell a couple of weeks ago about when WGR went from the 22nd floor down to the 8th floor and how I, I got there on the weekend because at the time I was interning for Joe Gannon. It was my first full, you know, my first gig in radio. And I remember getting there on Saturday and that whole floor had been ransacked. It looked like it was just ransacked. Everything had, everything had been picked from. But I remember I got, I, I got a couple things from from that. I got I think I got a, a cart of J.P., uh, narrating the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade, and I also have a couple of Bob U for uh, U of M football discs. Did you get anything from that? I don't know what uh, that 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 rioting of the twenty second floor. <laughs> uh, I, I had a a couple of microphone ID uh, things that, that that were this style then, and I had a a jacket. Uh, that was one thing back back in then. They gave us jackets with WJR on it so people could see these radio people who they were from gave us a little insight. Right. But I, I wasn't as, as uh, lucky to get as many mem- mementos. Uh, uh, I have a friend, uh, Ed Milkey, who was an engineer at WJR for years, is now retired up north, has a whole room full of mementos from, from WJR because he was smart enough to, to, to find them. Gene, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. All the best to you and yours, my friend. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again, Gene, and thank you for tuning in for Radio Days, the podcast. And, of course, keep an eye out for Radio Days, the movie, coming later this year. Again, if you would like to help and become a producer for this movie, click on the heart at the top of the page and become a Patreon. Every little bit helps. Thank you in advance. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos, 
professional photography, headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, if you've been thinking about starting a podcast, I highly recommend Buzzsprout. It has detailed analytics, uh, tools to promote your episodes, and more. Follow the link in the show notes, and that'll get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan. Plus, it helps support this show right here. Tune in next week for another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.